This evening, I'd like to begin with a poem to help frame the particular reflections I want to share with you. And it's a poem by Lisa Lowitz called Waiting. She begins, you keep waiting for something to happen. The thing that lifts you out of yourself, catapults you into doing all the things you've put off, the great things you're meant to do in your life, but somehow never quite get to. You keep waiting for the planets to shift, the new moon to bring news, the universe to align, something to give. Meanwhile, the pile of papers, the laundry, the dishes, the job, it all stacks up while you keep hoping for some miracle to blast down upon you, scattering the piles to the winds. Sometimes you lie in bed terrified of your life. Sometimes you laugh at the privilege of waking. But all the while, life goes on in its messy way. And then you turn 40 or 50 or 60. And some part of you realizes you're not alone. And you find signs of this in the animal kingdom. When a snake sheds its skin, its eyes glaze over. It slinks under a rock, not wanting to be touched. And when caterpillar turns to butterfly, if the pupa is brushed, it will die. And the, when the bird taps its beak hungrily against the egg, it's because the thing is too small, too small, and it needs to break out. And midlife walks you into that wisdom, that this is what transformation looks like. The mess of it, the tapping at the walls of your life, the yearning and writhing and pushing until one day, one day you emerge from the wreck, embracing both the immense dawn and the dusk of the body, glistening, beautiful, just as you are. I find this a moving poem, and in particular, I uh, love the imagery of the earthiness and messiness of transformation. As, as she says, this is what transformation looks like, the mess of it, the tapping at the walls of your life. And then what happens, you emerge from the wreck. We can want it so neat and tidy, that's one thing. And also, you might have noticed, sometimes what we bring to meditation practice is we're waiting. We're waiting for it to happen. It's going to happen soon, pretty soon. It's all going to come together. Have you noticed this? 
Like the mind can be waiting in some way. And I think both of these uh, things that she's pointing to in this poem, I want to come back to and, and highlight around this heart quality or really this heart mind quality of equanimity, which is such a key quality for the unfolding of this practice. And equanimity is, you know, it's found in these different lists, like it's uh, part of the seven factors of awakening. It's one of the Brahma Viharas. It kind of functions differently in different lists. And it's, it's so a part of, you could say, being the door person that I've been talking about, being present. And in particular, I, I think it's the quality that allows us to to navigate the the mess, the vicissitudes, the wreck of living with skill. So key. So tonight I, I want to share with you some reflections, what it is and what it isn't, how to cultivate, how to nurture this quality of heart. And I, I want to point out, like, uh, it, one of the things that inspires me around this is when I imagined the Buddha's life. You know, it's important to remember, after the Buddha achieved full awakening, his life wasn't filled with all kind of roses and days of pleasantries. Right? Remember, his his cousin tried to kill him. There were quite a few Brahmins going around and, around and saying all kinds of horrible things behind his back. His tribe, his clan, the Sakyans, were basically wiped out. They were murdered. There was a genocide, you could say, that was happened. It was Prince Virudaba that, that enacted that. He had so many of these vicissitudes of life, the praise and blame, the gain and loss, the pleasure and pain, the fame and disrepute. And, and he had a heart that was ready for anything. He had a heart that was rooted in equanimity, where equanimity was a natural quality. I think this is such an important quality for our lives and for our spiritual practice. And the way I'd like to begin sharing about this quality is just to begin with an image. Like this image, you could probably just vaguely see it of the, the Buddha here behind me. I don't know if you can see it, but I don't know if you can get a, a feeling sense of that archetypal posture, the meditative posture. When I take in these images of the posture of meditation, it, it, it looks like it's this quality between uh, bracing and collapsing, like it's upright, yet open. And I think it conveys something about this quality of equanimity, or you could say equipose. And that's another reason I, I want to say, 
it's not about waiting in the way that the poet was talking about waiting. It's something different. It's a quality of being that, that uh, we can begin to taste through this, this practice and this path. So one of the qualities is there that, that happens in, uh, that, that we can see in many of these kind of archetypal images of the meditative posture is stability. Having that stableness in the vicissitudes of life. And a kind of stability that's also fluid. that can really ride the waves like a, the, the image that I, I use I get from this other teacher Greg Scharf who's an insight meditation uh, teacher it's great Greg, Greg lives about five or ten minutes from me now even though we see most of each other when we're teaching at IMS on the east coast <laughs> it's uh, so sweet to have him here and he uses this image of the ballast of a ship you know how the ballast of a, of, of a ship works I think they used to line the ballast the, the the lower part of a ship with um lead and what that the way that weight would work it was it would write the the boat in terms of the the waves so whatever waves are happening because of the weight of the the bottom of the ship it would prevent it from tipping over to me that's the quality of stability that comes with equanimity it's responsive, and yet it has a, a weight to it at the same time. It's not static. It's not merely waiting. It's responsive. And I think that's the thing, is, is being able to, to be okay with the ups and downs in, in, in this manner. One story I like to tell about this is, I guess this was maybe six or seven years ago. This uh, Thai forest tradition monastic, Ajahn Brahmahamsa, was he was traveling around the states, and I think he was doing kind of these uh, benefits to support um, uh, bhikkhunis who had been fully ordained. And he was, I was teaching a, a month-long retreat at Spirit Rock, and he was there doing a day-long. And so he was there. For his midday meal and uh, all the teachers were we we're just talking with him and uh i remember him uh sharing about uh what had happened to him he had gone to this conference i think it was in vietnam of all these buddhist leaders uh, it must have it might have been just a the, the kind of the theravada tradition and it was a un sponsored event and he was invited to uh, give a talk. And Ajahn Brahmahamsa, the way he's so well known is because he um, has been a big supporter of uh, what's called bhikkhuni ordination or the full ordination of women, which is something that hasn't happened um, for a long time in the Theravada tradition. And he's been very outspoken about the importance of this. But it is not, and it still is not always a welcome idea in, in all factions of Theravada Buddhism. Still patriarchy. And, but he's been a big supporter. So he's really clear, listen, this is what I'm going to talk about. This is what's close to my heart. And this is what we need to talk about. And 
And it's a UN thing, gender equality. Like, I'm down for it. I'm going to give a talk. This is what the UN's about. And so he flew to Vietnam and he was all ready to give his talk. And when he got there, uh, the, the monastics and the powers that be that were uh, heading the event said, you can't give that talk. Sorry. And they shut him down. And so he flew back to, Vietnam, back to Australia, you know, without giving his talk in, in Vietnam. And somebody asked, uh, asked him, uh, boy, that must have really upset you. And he said, well, of course it didn't. And somebody said, well, what's up with that? Why weren't you upset? He said, well, this is how change happens. Like, this is, uh, this is the way it is. Like, this is what happens when you speak out about things. People are going to do those things. just the way it is. And I so appreciated it. It was like, oh, yeah, this is what happens. I understand this. This is the way the world unfolds. Yep. He wasn't going to let that situation get the, the better of him. And what he shared with us when he was at Spirit Rock, he said, it's kind of the flip side, he said, it was actually the best thing that probably ever happened to him for his talk, because nobody probably would have read that talk if it hadn't been banned. But since it was banned, it was like a really popular talk that everybody <laughs> read and was interested in. <laughs> so it was uh, quite interesting. But it was a responsiveness, like he was still responding, he was still still acting in a wor in, in the world in a really important way. He wasn't just being silenced, but at the same time, he understood that the way the world works, his heart wasn't hooked by it. The stability that has a kind of uh, uh, responsiveness to it. You know, I, th I think some of this is captured in this, uh, just this line from um, uh, this, this poet, this uh, woman from the Tang Dynasty in China, the ninth century poet, um, uh, Yu uh, Zhuangzi. And just this one line where she says, everywhere the winds carry me is my home. And I love that. Like, oh yeah, my home, yeah, it's, it's wherever this heart and mind are carried. I can find my home, home anywhere. Because here is the, in terms of, you know, interpreting it from this lens of our practice, because here is my practice. Here I can be the door person. Here I can be aware. Here is awareness. Ah, here is my home. Ah, that, that's equanimity. As uh, I mentioned with these other Brahma Viharas that we've, we've been exploring, there's a, a near enemy and a far enemy in, in this definition in terms of the commentaries, the, the commentary of the Vasudhi Maga. The far enemy being the opposite of what equanimity is. So what's the opposite of equanimity? Reactivity. It's when my mind and heart are, are hooked. They're obsessing or obsessively wanting something, obsessively, my mind's obsessively not wanting something or it's checked out, that reactivity. And the near enemy, the thing that we can get equanimity confused with, 
what's that? That's indifference. And I think this is important, right? Just like the, the, the ballast of the ship, it's responsive. Indifferent, when, when the heart is indifferent, it's just in some ways there's a quality of apathy of being disconnected. And sometimes that's what gets associated with equanimity, but equanimity is not that. Like I remember being at a trauma conference and there was a person there who was had some a, a meditation background and they were being labeled as very calm and peaceful and steady and stable just because they were a meditator. But actually, this person was extremely disconnected and underneath that was a tremendous amount of mental anguish. Because sometimes that's what can create a kind of indifference is there's so much going on that the, the system flattens out. That's not equanimity. That's something really different. It's not getting to a place where we don't find things to be either agreeable or disagreeable, or that we no longer have preferences. Rather, it's having preferences and not getting hooked by them. Like this was an important thing for me after being a Zen monk, you know, so many of the decisions were being made to have preferences, to voice preferences, and to be okay if, if they don't go through. Again, equanimity. So equanimity, a kind of stability, it's not indifference. It's responsive. And also, there's a clarity that's there with equanimity. Upeka originally meant to look at or to perceive patiently. And it's interesting, the, the Buddha distinguishes, you know, in one discourse, he talks, it could be more, in more than one discourse, but he talks about uh, the di difference between what he calls household equanimity, which is merely the equanimity that's blind to danger. Like, I just feel okay because I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> Compared to renunciation equanimity, or you could say the equanimity of a practitioner, where there's this uh, equanimity that arises out of the spiritual path based on seeing clearly the nature of experience. Like with Ajahn Brahmahamsa, oh, this is what human binds do. When I say something that's against the grain, such as saying something about a patriarchal system, oh, this is what minds do. They're going to react. Oh, I have clarity about that. This is the way it is. So that, that clarity, that, that comes with it. Like the image that I use for myself is uh, just where I live in Flagstaff about, really it's about 15 minutes or so I can be in the forest and then there's this hill, Mount Eldon, that I can hike up. And I can get to a place where uh, it's so great, I can overlook most of the city and I'm out of the hustle and bustle of the city, and I have this broader perspective, like I can kind of see what's going on. There's a clarity there that's broad. It's like seeing a situation for what it is. Joanna Macy 
exemplifies this so clearly around the climate catastrophe that's going on. She says, to give full attention to the perils confronting our world invites an almost excruciating tension. It is the tension between seeing the enormity of the peril, such as climate chaos, mass extinctions, nuclear warfare, and seeing the inadequacy of our response to it. It takes courage to endure these tensions, yet endure them we must. For us to be, for to be conscious enough to act responsibly requires being awake to the possibility of failure. I feel this is a crucial point in terms of really of any kind of societal or political action, the possibility of failure for what we want the outcome to be. How do I act in the world responsibly, right? And keeping that in mind and having equanimity about that. You know, sometimes there can be so much desperation that it complicates the whole process of actions in our lives or systemically. It's the way it is. Right? None of us are in complete control. And how can I start to take that in with a sense of balance, a stability? Not to be overwhelmed or crushed rather to have clarity. And even in times when there's very little control, I think sometimes these are the places where I can be so inspired by others' equanimity. So for example, Ajahn Suchito, Suchito some of you might know him, he's a, also a, a, a monastic in the Thai Force tradition. He, he was on, uh, I think he was on uh, what's called Tudong in India, which is a, on pilgrimage. And he was in a, a Buddhist site called uh, Rajgir, and, which is in Bihar, India. And four armed robbers attacked him and his attendant, his Kapiya. And there was a lot of kind of hustle and tussle. These guys were trying to get everything that they had on them, which wasn't a lot, you know. And, and in the midst of this, uh, he, um, in the midst of this, one of the robbers drew up an axe right at him. And and it was so interesting what he reflected on. His sense was like, well, everyone has to die and maybe this is my time. And the thing he was clear about is like, and I don't wanna die with fear. So what he did is he made this motion on his head. He bowed his head towards the robber and made this motion. 
and the robber kind of froze. So he took a step forward and made the motion, kind of saying like, right here, like that's, that's where you want to strike. I find that so incredible, that kind of equanimity and the clarity of what he wanted in his last moments of his life. And it's true, the, the robber got lost his equanimity, he said it wasn't there in the first place, but was so startled by this uh, that they ran away. And he said really what he was uh, trusting was the, the power of openness. Stability, clarity, finding balance and stability in an unbalanced, unstable world. And also in your meditation practice, this is what we're, we're doing. So how to, how to practice this, how to cultivate equanimity, how do you nurture it, nourish it? How do you discover balance, stability in this unstable world. So, uh, I know this friend, this woman who, it's a great story, I promise, this, this will relate. <laughs> she has this, uh, at the time, I think her son was about seven, seven years old. And he was in that stage of practicing riding a bike. And I don't know if you've seen some of these bikes now, you know, I didn't learn this way. Get on a bike and you start to get a sense of riding a bike even before pedaling it, you know? And so he was in this realm of really like staying on a bike. He was really exploring this whole realm. And his mom was out with him and she went down this hill and then she was waiting at the bottom. And then he went down the hill. He kind of wobbled all over the place and then kind of straightened out and got down to her. And he said to her, Mom, did you see how I wobbled and then I went after that, how I straightened out, how then I went straight? And she said, yeah, I did. And then he said, well, do you want to know how I did that? And of course he said, yes, I do. <laughs> and he said, when I started to wobble, then I feel the breeze. And then I say to myself, asteroid, asteroid, asteroid. And then I found my balance inside. <laughs> and then he asked her, how do you find your balance? And I think that's the question. How do you find your balance when you're wobbling? Maybe it's feeling the breeze. Maybe you have that magical, powerful word. I think sometimes the word asteroid might have more power to a seven-year-old, but you never know, right? <laughs> 
What I love about that story is this sense of exploration. Here I'm wobbling. What's going to allow me to find my balance inside? What's that going to be for you? Okay, I will say something, so I won't leave you just with the, the question. <laughs> I do want to point out that there's that this is inherent in being the practicing being the door person. Like this is what the door person's all about, right? To having the stability to hang with the the guests that are coming through the door, not being reactive. It takes it equanimity equipoise to hang out at the door don't you think have you noticed that not to shut the door not to go to the bar just to hang there not out of waiting but with a presence because that's what's transformative with a soft heart and it's the repetition of that practicing okay can i be okay with the guests that are coming through and when the mind is not okay at all can i be okay with that that's another thing i can be okay with is not only the for example the emotion that might be coming up whether it's boredom or sleepiness or irritation but maybe there's a judging on top of that or a reactivity oh can i be okay with the lack of okayness okay, let me see if i can practice this So it's inherent in what we're doing. I want to point that out. And it's trusting this process. Also, sometimes in the midst of this, what I do, sometimes I will put, just throw in a phrase in my meditation to see if I can prime for that quality of stability just a little bit to help practice equanimity. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll just say just once, like, oh, this is the way it is. Yep, achiness in the body. Yeah, th this is the way it is. The mind racing all over the place. Yep, this is the way it is. It's not the way I think it should be. <laughs> That's often where my mind's residing, right? Have you ever noticed that? It's like, this is the way it should be. Okay, so now how do we get, get there? It's like, like the heart is hovering there rather than, oh, down here, like in a more subtle place of like, this is the way it is. And it doesn't mean I don't respond to the conditions there. Maybe if I'm really sleepy, I still open up my eyes to get some energy going. It's not about not responding. It just feels so different when I'm responding from a place of this is the way it is compared to this is the way it should be. It feels different. It's like Ajahn Brahm, like, yeah, this is the way it is. People are going to react, and then I'm going to respond to that rather than people shouldn't be this way. Well, I mean, well, maybe they shouldn't be, but they are. This is the way it is. Oh, and then there's a, a more of a stability there. 
again, sometimes something what I play with is exploring the feeling of, and I know this is a, could be foreign for some of you, is the feeling of what I'd call the earth element in the body. So it's any feeling of solidity. Sometimes when I feel the bones or the weight of the body, it can be really helpful. For some people, it's feeling the earth herself or feeling the feet as you're walking or feeling like the hara or that's why I invite you sometimes when I was inviting you in the relaxation, allowing the pelvic floor to settle downward and open sometimes can be really grounding. To play with that, because sometimes I find what's inherent in that for me is a quality of like, oh, this is the way it is. Like, here I am with this in the sense of this is the way it is. And then I, I think the, the next kind of phrase that I'll use, especially on home retreat, especially if there are things that are coming up that you have to navigate and, and deal with, is just this phrase, these two words, this too, T-O-O, this too. Because what I what I notice my mind do, especially on quote unquote home retreat, where it feels like there's things outside of my retreat, is that my mind is subtly exiling certain aspects of the day from retreat practice, and then other parts of uh, the day get included in retreat practice. This can be quite subtle, and it can be so cool. Like whatever's going on, right? You're having the conversation with that person that you really don't want to have on retreat, and there it is, to be able to say, oh, this too. To land that, and then what I find is that that starts to get incorporated into my practice, which then starts to get touched in, like, oh, this is the way it is. I invite you to play around with that. What's the thing, what's the activity or activities that the mind is exiling from retreat practice? It's like it, it reminds me of this poem from uh, Denise Levertov entitled Benediction. I don't remember a, a benediction, benediction could be like a, it's like an, an ask for divine help or a, a blessing to bring something to us in some ways, maybe one way of understanding it. So this is her benediction. She, she says, marvelous truth. Again, marvelous truth. Confront us at every turn in every guise, iron ball, egg, dark horse, shadow, cloud of breath on the air. Dwell in our crowded hearts, our steaming bathrooms, kitchen full of things to be done, the ordinary streets. Thrust close your smile so that we know you. Terrible joy. having that quality, like, may the marvelous truth confront me at every turn in my life. 
from these such mundane things, an egg, a cloud of breath on the air, bathrooms, kitchens full of things to be done. And to also be open to the marvelous truth. I so appreciate this. Throw, thrust close your smile that we know you. And both of these words, right? Terrible. Sometimes experience is terrible. Enjoy. Also, in the, the midst of this, the thing to begin to notice, because it's so intertwined with equanimity, is noticing reactivity of the mind and having a kind of playfulness or curiosity. Like being able to notice when the mind is reactive to some sound outside. It's reactive to the heat, probably, if you're there in Phoenix <laughs> or Houston. Right. Oh, interesting. Oh, this is so cool. Look at I'm seeing like it's not only really hot here, unbearably hot. Like, oh, this is it. Oh, the mind is not liking it. Oh, it's really not liking it now. It's middle of the day. Oh, oh, now that kind of eases up. Oh, cool. I'm noticing this. The noticing so often is going to carry this quality of equanimity to it. And then to also notice when the mind isn't reactive, the absence. It's much harder to do that. Like to start to catch in your meditation, I actually feel pretty okay right now with experience. That's pretty cool. And it's called equanimity. <laughs> it's not like some grand like fireworks and things like that. And to land that, there's a kind of neutrality to the flavor of equanimity. Yeah, so these might be some things you, you might want to explore or become curious about that allows this practice to nurture, to nourish this beautiful quality of equanimity. Really, so that, so that we can really honor these words of you, Zhuangzi, the, the, the poet, when she says, everywhere the winds carry me is my home. So... So may we embody this so that everywhere the winds carry us, that we find our home, our home and wakefulness and awareness for the benefit of all beings. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>